fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent the servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent them away empty-handed. And again to sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owners of the vineyards do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give us the vineyard to others. Have you read, not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people, for they preserved that he had told the parable against them, so they left him and went away. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Last week we had a passage of scripture which showed Jesus Christ as the one with authority. And so this week, in the same scene, this isn't the end of the day or the next day or anything like that. They hadn't gone back to Bethany or came back to Jerusalem. This is right after that, right after that whole scene with the authority of Jesus. We have now the proclamation that God has ownership. Jesus the Son has all authority, and he has that authority because the God the Father, the one who has ownership, has given him that authority. And as we walk through this passage of Scripture, I want us to, to, to kind of think of damnation. I know that's not a pleasant thing to think of, but to, to, to think of hell. Because one of the, one of the things, one of the pushbacks that people have to the idea that God would send somebody to hell is, how would a loving and caring and gracious and patient God send anybody to hell? But as Jesus unpacks this parable, as he tells this parable, uh, he he really shows that that is a short-sighted statement. That, That how long should one demonstrate patience before they had just have had enough, till it becomes there becomes an end to that patience. So we look at this passage of scripture. It opens up uh, chapter twelve of Mark, and he says that and he began to speak to them in parables. Now we haven't had parables in Mark for a while. For a while there, it was like every single week we were just walking through and unpacking parables. So just as a refresher, a parable is a story to help uh, illuminate a certain truth. But the way Jesus Christ tells parables is 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 very intentional. Uh, and it's it's very um, 
uh, wise, the way he tells parables. So when he was telling parables to in front of his disciples, those following him, and also to those accusing him, the religious leaders, he would tell them not only to illuminate it to his followers, but to also keep out those who were trying to persecute him. He was keeping things hidden from them while illuminating them to the people who were following him. Well, it's a, it's a little bit different this time. Because he's telling this parable directly to the Sanhedrin. In other words, he's telling this parable directly to the religious leaders of the time. And he says it in a parable because he still wants to keep hidden. It's not quite time for them to, uh, for him to turn himself over to be uh, crucified. But they're, rest assured, there is no doubt they understand what he's saying. They are not clueless. They don't need a key. They don't need further explanation. Verse 12 tells us that. Verse 12 says, And they were seeking to arrest him, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they know exactly what he's saying. So he begins with this parable. He says, A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. So right there, if you're the Sanhedrin, okay, you understand the Old Testament scriptures backwards, forwards, upside down. You have the entire thing memorized. Okay, all somebody has to do is say the first two or three words of any verse and then you can just take it from there off top of your head. So when he says this, there is no doubt they think of Isaiah 5. Isaiah 5 reads this. My, my loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside, and he dug it up and cleared out it out of the stones, and he planted it with the choicest vines. And he built a watchtower in it and cut a wine press as well. And he looked at a, for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. So this is Isaiah talking about Israel, talking about the temple, talking about this is what God has done. Okay, Israel it was set up by God. This is God, the beloved God, set up this people group and had given and protected them with laws and, and covenants and, and all of these things so that it would produce a good fruit. And yet it never produced any good fruit. Fruit. It was a it was a, a condemnation on Israel, and so Jesus takes that and uses this parable against the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of the time that we have here. So here is this man who plants this vineyard and he, and he builds it all up. It's ready to go, and then he leaves. He goes to a different country, but he leases it to tenants. This is this might sound odd, but it's not odd at all in this day and age, at this time period, in this in this specific land. Uh, a crop it would take anywhere between three to five years to produce. So it was nothing for somebody who was wealthy and wanted to make an investment to buy land and, and to make it ready to produce fruit and then leave. And what he would do is he would get tenants to look after that property. And then when time came to, to, to harvest, to reap the fruit of that vineyard or whatever they had planted, there was always an agreement that they had with the tenants. A percentage. They got to keep a percentage and, of course, the owner excuse me, got a percentage. So this, this parable speaks 
directly to the time, they would have understood what he was saying. So he goes on to tell when the season came, he sent a servant. He sent a servant to the tenants. So he knows it's now time, okay, it's been three to five years, I understand that there should be some fruit to harvest here, something to reap. And so he takes one of his servants and he says, go, collect what is due to me in my vineyard. There is absolute full-on expectation that the servant will return with what is rightfully the owner's. He would never assume otherwise. But that's not what happens. Verse 3 says, And they took him, and they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was the owner of this vineyard, and I took one of my guys and sent them to go collect what is mine, and he came back beaten by the people that are under my employ, empty-handed, I'm bringing my wrath. Amen? Anybody else? I don't need to go through that again. We're wiping these guys out. We're starting this all over. And legally, I would have had every right. Who would have cried foul had I had gone in there with the wrath? Who would have said, whoa, whoa, what kind of person are you? No, everybody would have, would have, would have gone, whoa, they shouldn't have done that. It's right and just for this owner to end it there. And so sometimes when we think through when we think through salvation and hell, sometimes we go, well, how is this, how is this fair? We forget that we stand condemned already. Uh, this, this analogy here is, is God is the owner of the vineyard, and the religious leaders of the time are the, the tenants. And we think through that he sends them a prophet. We know this throughout the Old Testament. He sends them a prophet. And how were the prophets received in the Old Testament? Horrible. Horrible. Nobody listened to them. They mocked them. They beat them. They killed some of them. We understand that God created everything good. Perfect. And he created that to have relationship with, with him, created man and woman to have relationship, intimate relationship. I mean, what he set out, what he laid out, looks nothing like what we know. This is all our fault. We did all that we see in the news every day to his creation. This isn't our creation. It's not our world. It's not our, our people. They're all of His. We understand that it would have been right and just the minute Adam and Eve disobeyed Him to end it there. Amen? Nobody could have said anything. Nobody could have said anything. He was right and just to end it 
there, but he didn't. He didn't end it there. And he didn't just send one prophet. Here in this story, in this parable, after they took and beat the first servant that he sent, verse 4 says again he sent them another servant. And what did they do to the next servant? The next prophet. They struck him in the head and treated him shamefully. So picture what they did. They were, they were throwing rocks at this guy. Mocking him. Belittling him. Berating him. Throwing rocks at him. And they were, they were hitting him in the head. Okay, now I'm really done. <laughs> right? That's it. And, and, and nobody can say that I wasn't patient. I sent two. And you did something worse to the second one than you did the first. But not God. Verse 5, it says, And then he sent another. And him they killed. And so with many others. Some they beat. And some they killed. So with many he just keeps sending them one after the next. Who could stand and say, God is not a God of long-suffering patience? It is a patience that I don't even under... It's a mystery. But for Can you imagine how much... He must love us to continue to send messengers and servants, people pleading with us to repent. And servant after servant, prophet after prophet, mock them, spit at them, treat them poorly and reject them. Thousands of years this goes on. This isn't, you know, thousands of years. I mean, this is incredible. It's, a, it's human nature though, isn't it, to like, if you give me an inch, I want to, I want to take a mile, you know, or to just, I'm going to push back, it's a new job. We get a new job, we're just going to push back. We're, you know, I'm sure all the students are doing this. They got a new teacher the first day of school. You know, you're, you're on your best behavior, but by, by day three or four, you're pushing a little bit to see what you can get away with. <laughs> How far will, is she going to bend before he or she breaks? It's human nature. And we sometimes can misconstrue the patience of God, the kindness of God, for some sort of weakness or absence or just not even caring. But the scripture is clear that his kindness, his patience, his long-suffering is meant to lead us to repentance. So some say, why hasn't he come back yet? Why hasn't... Why hasn't he come back? Because he loves us. He is giving us all the opportunity in the world to gather all of his sheep. 
Isaiah 65 says this, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually. And he just keeps his hand out. He keeps his hand out. The grace and the mercy and the long-suffering of God. Even in our relationships today, as we have right posture because of what Christ did, think through how challenging you have been (laughs) in your sanctification. The sins that you just have clung on to, the stubbornness that you have shown. And yet, what's the, how is it going? I've given Jesus Christ millions of reasons to love me less, and he doesn't love me any less. The incredible long-suffering patience of our Lord. And he's not done. In verse 6 he said, he had still one other. He had sent out all of his servants. All of his prophets have come. And he's got one. He's got one remaining. And this one isn't like the other ones. This one is the beloved son. It says, finally he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. See, this one's different. They were many, but he is one. He is unique. They were hirelings, but he is the heir. They are forerunners. He is the last and final word of the Father. He is the one that is beloved. We, we can't miss either here that um, that Jesus Christ in this parable is calling himself the Son of God. We get that to the Sanhedrin's face. They're getting this. This is considered blasphemy. But he's doing it in a parable. We can see where he's, he's hiding it, but it's a thin veil. You can see right through the veil. You can see right through it. He is, he is calling himself, proclaiming himself, the Son of God in this analogy when he does this. And he is saying, in essence, I'm it. You reject me, you reject God. There's nothing else going to happen here. You reject me, you reject God. He said that they they will respect my son. I mean, why wouldn't they respect the the son of the owner? But those tenants said to one another in verse 7, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And his inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Pop psychiatry and psychology has 
pumped this theme into our society for years. And it's hard not to be at least somewhat formulated by it, somewhat affected by it, somewhat have the, 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 the paradigm that they have been pushing because it's just so saturated in our Western community. And it is this, that man is inherently, basically, good. I don't know of a bigger lie. You and I are not inherently and basically good. We're just not. This shows the wickedness and the hatred of man, and it positions it right up against the holiness and the goodness and the love of God. Here's this God, this long-suffering God, holding out of his hand. What's he trying to do? What is God trying to do here but to redeem his people? He's trying to redeem them, to bring them back in to what he had created for them out of this love that we can't even imagine. And he, what is, the, what is his, the history of Israel if not the consistent rebellion against God? Guys, what is the sum total of human history? Israel, Gentile, human history, if not the attempt to rid God of the universe. To murder God. That's what human, mankind, above all else, desires. To overtake the throne. To place us where he sits. This is what sin is. It's how God views sin. It's an attack on his throne, his righteousness, on his authority, on his ownership. To my face, he says in Isaiah. See, if humanity can dispense with God or even kill God, then humanity can become God. I was at a thing on Friday. It was a um, an outreach uh, training, kind of a, a class with All for Jesus, which is the uh, local campus ministry uh, crusade here. And one of the people that were attending was this young man from China. Uh, he's from China, uh, spoke a very, very difficult to speak English, uh, but he's here because he's got accepted on a scholarship to New Paltz. So when he landed in this country, he landed here as a complete and total atheist. And the reason why he was an atheist is because in school, since kindergarten, they taught him there is no God. In fact, in order to graduate with a high school diploma, one of the things that he had to do was make and sign the statement, there is no God. You don't say it, you don't sign it, you don't graduate from high school. 
humans are not basically good. We want to kill our Creator. If a, if a child tried to kill or murder their father or mother, you would think there is something wrong with this child needs to be separated from society. That is evil. It is evil. A God who has done nothing to us. But we can see the posture of the Sanhedrin. It is the posture of man. We don't want to lose our own proclaimed authority, our own ownership and kingship of our own lives. We want to just do what we think is right, what we feel is right. We want autonomy from God. And then it just blows my mind that so many people have a problem with hell. You have spent an entire lifetime trying to get away from God. Why would you want to be with Him in the afterlife? It makes no sense. He inevitably just gives you what you wanted your whole life. You don't want anything to do with me? See ya. That's what Romans says, right? Just give you into it. So Jesus says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Notice here, he's reminding the Sanhedrin that God is the owner. They're not the owner. God is the owner. He says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? After what? After sending for thousands of years, prophet after prophet after prophet, eventually then sending down his own son, his only son, his beloved son, just to watch him crucified on a cross and mocked and beat and spit at and rejected, thrown out of the vineyard, thrown out of the temple, thrown out of Israel, then what is the owner to do? He doesn't give him a chance to answer. He tells him. He tells him exactly what the owner will do. He will come and destroy the tenants. And he will give the vineyard to others. Notice how he doesn't destroy the vineyard. The vineyard is his property. But he is done with these tenants. And he is going to give it over to a new set of tenants. Do you know who that is? Raise your hand. It's the church. The church is the new tenants. And so when we think it through this, and this guy's, isn't it kind of sobering to remember that we don't own this church? This is God's church. We don't own the mission, it's God's mission. We don't own the gospel. It's God's gospel. Why then, week in and week out, do I see pastors and church leaders and churches watering down the gospel to make it more palatable palatable to lost people? Are they not doing the same type of thing here? just to fill their church? If you want to, if you're interested, this weekend, coming up, there's a large church in Nashville. A mega church. 
lots of people. And they are leading the pride parade in their community. They've got signs made up, t-shirts, plastered all over their Instagram and Facebook accounts. They are proud about their pride. To my face, God says. I mean, talk about just, no, no, God. We'll decide. We'll decide what your gospel is, what the church is, what should be repented of, and what can remain. So what we must remember, we must hold uh, in close proximity to us always, that we are, it is not ours, it is God's. We are just but tenants that he is using to harvest. What's the Lord's portion? People. People is the Lord's portion. That is what he is coming. He is going to come and turn and look at the church and say, where are my people? That's what he wants. The lost found. His sheep found. So he tells them, he says, listen, have you not read the scripture? You have to remember, I laugh every time I read Jesus saying this to the Sanhedrin. Have you not read the scripture? Remember, again, these are the people that would have been steeped in the scripture. They would have known up and down, so it's a little bit of a wisecrack when he says that every time. It would have stung. It it would have stung. Have you not read? Have you not read uh, the scripture? And he quotes from Psalm 118. He, he says, He will come and destroy the tenants. Oh, I'm sorry. Have you noticed the, the stone that the builders reject, rejected has become the cornerstone. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So the Jews understood this as the stone being their own nation that was rejected by the other nations that the Lord would come and restore. But we now know and understand and has been repeated over and over and over in the epistles throughout the the rest of the New Testament that Jesus Christ is the stone that was rejected and is now the cornerstone. And Mark adds this. This is unique from the other synoptic gospels. He adds this line here. He says, uh, this was the Lord's doing and it, it is marvelous in our eyes. So he doesn't want anybody to think that somehow or another he would just found himself in a position where he was getting crucified. Right? The cross is according to Scripture. You know, the, the Scriptures prophesied the cross hundreds and hundreds of years before the cross was even a means of death. This is all very much on purpose and so very Good news to us. We have to understand this. This is what can you do to Jesus? If you reject him, he becomes the cornerstone. He becomes the very foundational stone of all things in which all things are built and towards. This is why Mark adds this. It's marvelous in our eyes. It's the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. 
Charles Spurgeon, some of you know that I'm, I think he's an okay guy. He's just got such a way with words, and this is how he puts it. He says, if you reject him, he answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing. If you kill him, he dies to redeem. If you bury him, he rises again to bring resurrection. Charles Spurgeon goes on to say, Jesus is love made manifest. This is not a love that can be stopped. No, No plot of hell, no scheme of man, Nothing can stop our Lord and Savior. And we know this. He's not done. This was phase one of a two-phase plan. First coming, humble, giving us all a chance to see and repent and die like he died so that we can resurrect like he resurrected. So as we look at the the darkness and the hate, and even as we experience in our own lives darkness and hate, difficulty and tragedy, there's this human tendency to want to to allow it to make us hard. To fight with our adversary through words and battle. To resent people. To resent our circumstance and our situation. But here do we not see that the call is not to hate, but to love To love in a way that the world can never understand? That I myself struggle with understanding? To love your enemies so much so that your enemy stops and goes, What are you doing? (laughs) What are you doing? The call is to love. Because of this. Because he's coming back. Romans 8, Paul tells us, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory of that is to be revealed to us. Jesus Christ is on his throne. Nothing stopped him from getting there. And he has called us, his church, to be the new tenants of his vineyard. And he is looking for his lost. He is looking to redeem his lost. He is going to use us. And there will be complications and difficulties as we're called to holiness, as we're called to reach out in that great commission. But we must remember that there's nothing you can do to Jesus to stop him, and he will come back. And as he resurrected, church, so will we. So will we. Our day is coming. It's not here yet. Let's not act like it should be. It's not here yet. We will feel that. And it won't always feel good. 
Our Lord, when he was here, suffered. So will we. But know that the resurrection is coming. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this parable.